0: Just one little piece of housekeeping to take care of as we get started here. Uh, starting next Sunday, we're going to be doing a new series in, through the Book of Romans. Um, and through the summer, we've just had things have been so disjointed that we've not even tried to fit that into a, a, a series or a theme, but that's where we're going to be uh, starting next, uh, next week. Uh, many of you know last month we started a congregational direction process where we're just trying to discern uh, things that are our values and things that are important to us. And, and some of the early feedback we're getting is a is a increased need for outreach, which I think is something really important and something valuable. I'm, I'm glad to see that that's something that the congregation is wanting to emphasize. So this morning's sermon is just uh, to help us begin to think in those lines and, and to begin to imagine what it would be like for us as a congregation, what that would look like for us to be more involved in different forms of outreach. Last week, our uh, family was in Puerto Vallarta, Mexico for uh, vacation. And if you've never been to Mexico, you will meet some of the nicest people in the world. Um, you will also meet what we called the people in white. Um, as soon as you get onto a beach in Mexico, there are these people who have all sorts of things to sell. They get a commission if you take a, a boat trip, or if you go snorkeling and that. And so from miles away, They'll see you enter the beach, and you can just tell they've locked in on you, and as you come up, and they'll pepper you with questions about, do you want to go on a boat ride? Do you want to go on a circle? Do you want to do this? Do you want to do this? And eventually, I learned the best thing to do is you just kind of put your head down, and you just keep on moving down the beach. But because they get rejected so often, they develop this technique of let's just kind of somehow initiate a conversation. So at one point, uh, my wife and I are throwing a Frisbee and this guy comes up and he says, oh, wow, what, what's that called? Oh, it's a Frisbee. And, um, well, you're, you're really good. How did you learn to do that? And, oh, she can catch really well. And, you know, I just would mumble things between everything. And for about a minute was this question after question after question. And then I said, well, would you like to go on a boat, a boat trip? And the moment my mouth began to even articulate the word no, like he was gone. Um, I was going to say no because I get seasick and all that. But as soon as I got to, I know uh, because it just walked away. And you realize not all the relationships that you have with people are mutual relationships. There are some people who will initiate and develop a relationship with you in order to get some gain uh, for their benefit or for their end. Uh, so these are what in our sermon we're going to call transactional relationships. A transactional relationship is a relationship that is initiated and sustained with the sole underlying hope that that relationship will lead to a transaction, a transaction that is often in the benefit of the person who initiates it. And we've probably all been victims of a transactional relationship where somebody corners us and asks us if we are interested in whatever it is that they have to sell. And how do you feel when you are the victim of a transactional relationship. You feel like an object. You feel like you're being used. You feel like there's nothing genuine or authentic in anything that the person is saying. But on the opposite end of the transactional relationships are transformational relationships. A transformational relationship is rooted in an internal virtue and motivated by the goal of being a blessing to another. These are people who are kind just simply because they're kind. These are people who are generous just simply because they're generous. There's no ploy. There's no, uh, there's no working you over that happens there. When we used to live overseas and we were traveling uh, through Brisbane, Australia, and sometimes the hotels there can be kind of expensive, and we were sharing that with some friends, and they said, hey, we know this family who lives in Brisbane, and I'm sure they would be happy to host you. And so, of course, you backpedal, no, 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 we wouldn't want to impose. And they said, no, seriously, they love hosting people. So I called this random family that I'd never met, and I said, well, you know, we got these, uh, at the time, two kids and my wife, and can we stay with you? And, oh, yeah, we'd love to have you. And we showed up expecting, you know, we'd be kind of ushered in this little corner room, and we'd uh, have to stay there. And it turns out they had a whole little bungalow in their backyard, and they brought us in there, and they'd already had uh, cold things in the refrigerator and some grocery foods there ready for us. And the guy said, and we're eating dinner at 6, and we're hoping that you'll join us at 6, six o'clock. And do you need a car to drive while you're here? And I'm thinking, this guy doesn't even know me. And he's offering me his car to drive around while we're there. And that simply is who they are. They're people who are kind. They're people who are generous. And you begin to realize that there are these two different kinds of relationships that we have with people. Transformational relationships and transactional relationships. The question I want us to explore a little bit in our sermon this morning is, what type of relationship do we, as a church, want to have with our community? And what kind of relationship do I, as an individual, want to have with my neighbors? So I'm going to give you the conclusion right up front to start with. Um, I believe that our relationship with others should be primarily transformational while recognizing that there are transactional elements in our relationships with others. And think about the words of Jesus in Matthew 28, 19. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We've done some of the legwork for this before, so I won't go there, but int- essentially there's one command here, which is to make disciples. And then there are these supporting elements of going, baptizing, and then teaching in the next verse. And so we realize that there is, there is an intended end that we have in relationships. We do want people to become disciples of Jesus. That, that is a longing and a goal that God gives us that we have embraced. And we recognize that when we encounter non-Christians, there is this desire. There's this hope, there's this longing that they too would become disciples of Jesus. And in that way, I think we're much like God. Second Peter 3, 9 says that God um, is patient, not wanting any, uh, wanting all people to come to repentance. So, yeah, that's true of us, isn't it? We want all people to come to repentance. But with this recognition, we wonder, is that our sole reason for having relationships with people? Should we then develop conditional relationships with people? Say, I will, be, I will befriend you under the circumstance and the possibility that you would become a disciple of Jesus. But the moment that it becomes clear that that might not be a possibility, I'm out the door. Is that the kind of a relationship that we want with people? We realize there is a transaction, but where does the transformation happen? And I want us to look at uh, this well-known story in Luke 15 as we begin to unpack the kind of relationship that we want to have with people. So Luke chapter 10, uh, verse 30. um, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell into the hands of robbers who stripped him, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. This is pretty much the worst example of a transactional relationship, if you could even call it a relationship. But it's a recognition that here's a guy and we want to get something from him. And everything they do is, in order to get something from him, they strip him and beat him and went away. They took and they took and they took. The severity of it might surprise us, but the fact that there are people out there who just want to take advantage of you for their own purposes, for transactional reasons, that doesn't surprise us at all. But the twist in the story happens in verse 33. But a Samaritan, while traveling, came near him, and when he saw him, he was moved with pity. He went to him, bandaged his wounds, having poured oil and wine on them. He put them on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and he gave them to the innkeeper and he said, take care of him and when I come back, I will repay you whatever more you spend. Notice first of all the motivation. He was moved with pity. People realize that as as a person who is created in a certain way, that there's a recognition of how I ought to treat other people. And when I see somebody who is, who is bleeding and bruised on the side of the road, I should have some sort of internal motivation to want to assist them, to be kind to them, and to be generous to them. And so that's what this man does. While the robbers come and do everything at the expense of this man, the Samaritan does everything towards him at his own expense, costing him his resources, costing him his time. He bandages wounds, pours oils, and even gives money to him. But I want to finish this story in a way that Jesus doesn't finish the story, which is imagine you're the Jew and you wake up and you don't know where you are. What happened? And the innkeeper comes and he says, well, you were beat up by these guys and some Samaritan guy, he took you, he he bandaged your wounds, poured oil and wine on you, he um, brought you to the inn, he paid for it, says if there's any more expenses. And you're going to have one of two reactions to that. Either you're going to think, I am just so amazed that somebody did that for me, or you're going to think, What's he up to? What's his plan? What's his ploy? I don't want to be indebted to someone. He's going to come back and say, so by the way, since I did that for you, now you're going to have to do this for me. Sometimes aren't you nervous about accepting kindness from people because you're afraid what strings are going to be attached to it? And yet Jesus makes it very clear. He does not do this with any other intention other than the fact that he was simply moved by pity. That's a transformational relationship. I'm going to do what I'm going to do in your life because that's just simply the kind of a person I am, not simply because I have some sort of ploy or game plan that I'm trying to get you to play. And yet, even in the midst of transformational relationships, we realize Jesus has these callings to change. Mark 1, 14 through 15. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came to Galilee, proclaiming the good news of God and saying, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe in the good news. Jesus has a certain transaction. He would like to see all people repent and believe in this good news message. That is of value to him. And yet the question becomes, does Jesus then have transactional relationships with people? Does Jesus say, well, if you will do this, then in response, I will do that. Does Jesus say, look, I've been awfully kind to you. But you've not yet responded. And so until you choose to, I am no longer going to be kind to you. In fact, that's kind of a part of the discussion that happens with Jesus and the religious leaders. In Mark 2.16, they are concerned about the fact that Jesus eats with tax collectors and sinners. And the problem is that most of the, the Pharisees, the religious leaders, would say, repentance comes first. Once they've repented, then you can be around them and you can interact with them. And you can encourage them. But if that hasn't happened, you don't want to be in relationship with people like that. And Jesus does not make repentance a requirement for being in relationship with him. And he doesn't do it either before or afterwards. In other words, Jesus doesn't say at the end of dinner, okay, well, hey, I I was doing this because I'd hope you would repent, but since you didn't, trust me, we're never having dinner again together. Jesus is in relationship, not because it's a strategy, but as simply who he is as the very Son of God. This is not a method for conversion. It's a method for being a human being in relationship with other human beings. John 3.16 tells us, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, so that everyone who believes in him may not perish, but have eternal life. The reason God gave is because that's God's nature. God loves. And out of response of who God is, God will give his own Son. And there is an intended end there. He does it in order that people would believe and that they might not perish but have eternal life. But even to those who would reject this message, God is the kind of a God who would still give to them. God acts on the basis of his nature. See, Jesus' ministry hoped for a salvation outcome, but he realized the best way to lead to a salvation outcome is on the basis of a transformational relationship. When people realize you love them because that's the kind of a person you are, not because you're hoping to get something from them. So I believe relationships with others should be primarily transformational while we recognize that there are transactional elements. And the question I want us to think about is, are we in relationship with people in this way? Do people in our community, do they see us as people who genuinely love them, genuinely care for them, or do they see us as the people in white who are coming with something else to sell them, or something else to offer them? And there's actually been some research, surveys, stories that have been shared about this, and I want to give you the latest news about what non-Christians are saying about Christians when it comes to their perceptions of one another. Uh, david barna uh, david kinnaman is the president of barna group and so that was the exact uh thing they wanted to do in their last major survey was what is the non-christian perception of christians and to kind of give a picture of it he tells the story of a guy named stephen who participated in in the survey stephen's 34 years old uh, had just moved from new york to phoenix he said that a young guy approached him at the subway station he was friendly full of uh, questions was a very interesting young man um, and uh, Stephen says, I was amazed to find somebody who was nice in New York. He was kind of shocked by that. And they agreed that they'd be back in touch. And so the next time they were in conversation, um, this young man asked Stephen if he was interested in a Bible story. And Stephen said that he was not. Uh, he asked him if he would like to talk more about it, and Stephen said, I really don't have any interest in that. And whenever he said, no, thanks, an interesting talk about things spiritually, he said, the guy never called me ever again. It was the people in white trying to make their sale, and when they don't make their sale, then they say, Okay, fine, we're out of here. What the Barna Group surveys indicated is that there's a perception that that Christians are insincere and concerned only with converting others. And I think that the troubling thing here is that people are seeing us as seeing them as commodities, as transactional relationships. Only 15% of those surveyed believes that Christians are genuine and real. Why were you nice to me? Why did you talk to me? Why are you interested in me? Most non-Christians would say, because you've got some little ploy about some little study that you want to do, and if I don't play your little game, you're not going to want to have anything to do with me and perhaps the most interesting thing that Kinnaman and the research from the Barnard Group came up with is he said the biggest gap that they encountered was the gap between the Christians' perception of how they thought the non-Christians perceived them compared to how the non-Christians actually did perceive the Christians. So most Christians, when we ask, how do you think those non-Christians feel? Oh, they're going to say, we're just the nicest people on earth and we're so great and so wonderful and so kind. They're going to say really, really good things about us and then they go over to the non-Christians and say, hey, non-Christians, what do you think about those Christians? And they say, oh, insincere, not genuine. They're just, they're just trying to play a little game and they want me. And Kinnaman said that was the biggest gap, was that Christians did not realize how they were perceived by non-Christians. David Brooks is a best-selling New York Times author. In his most recent book, he talked about his conversion from Judaism to Christianity. He said when he was considering a conversion, he uh, reached out to his friends, Jewish friends and Christian friends, and he said, um, you know, what, what feedback do you have? What things do I need to think about? What things do I need to consider? And he said there were certain things, uh, feedback he got from Christians that he found very helpful, and there was feedback that he got from Christians that he found very unhelpful. The two things he put in his very helpful category were friends who were available to at- answer his questions. And he said that it was friends who would answer his questions in a way, not that they were trying to win an argument, but it was almost as if they believed that God would get him where he needed to be. So they answered his questions without any pressure, without putting him in a corner. He said, that was really helpful. He said, the other thing that was very helpful were people who were encouraging him through the journey. He said, he had a friend who every week would text and just say, I just want you to know I'm praying for you. If you need anything, let me know. And he found that really, really helpful. He had one thing that he listed that was very unhelpful. He said, Christians who crudely sought to woo me over as a sort of a win for their team. And my question is, how does he have any idea what's motivating people, what's doing that? And, and you realize between these consistent themes is people know what you're up to when it's a transactional relationship. If you see them as a high target possibility for conversion, and you say, I'm going to hop Mark over here. I'm going to, hey, hey, how are you? They're going to see right through it. The irony here, I think, that we find in this relationship is that the primary means to transformation is in many ways is letting go of the transactional element and genuinely just caring about someone leads to a greater opportunity for that person's transformation. So maybe we can kind of differentiate a little bit here between outcome-oriented outreach and outflow-oriented outreach. Outcome-oriented outreach judges the success of an outreach solely on the basis of outcomes Did the person become a Christian? If yes, keep doing it. If no, well, then there's no longer any point in doing this. Outflow-oriented judges the success based on if it is consistent with our values as Christians and if it's consistent with the nature of God. Let's illustrate it this way. I decide I'm going to go out and I'm going to give out 100 water bottles to thirsty people. And I go out and I give out 100 water bottles and at the end of it I look and I say, was that a good thing to do? If I'm doing... um, Outcome oriented, I'm going to look and say, well, how many conversions did I have of that? If I say zero, I say, "What's well, it's a waste of time. We're not going to hand out water anymore because it didn't have any of the outcomes we needed. If I am outflow oriented, I would say, did I love someone? Did I bless someone? Did I show the kindness of God? And if that's the case, I'm going to continue to do things simply because it is consistent with who I am as a follower of Jesus. The ultimate irony is that when we focus on outcome-oriented results, it often stifles the outcomes we want. When we focus on outflow-oriented things, it actually enhances the very outcome that we wish we would have. I'll illustrate this. I love babies. We have lots of little babies in this church. And there's two things about babies in this church. Number one, they're really smart. And number two, they don't like to smile at me. Those two things are consistent across all babies in this church. So what I do is I make it my goal to make that kid smile at me. And I double down on effort every time I see the kid, I've got got something new to do and something silly to do, and the kids are not at all impressed by it. And then eventually I just give up and say, that kid is hopeless, they will never smile at me, and sometimes something's happening, I'm doing something silly, and I look over at them, and they look at me and they smile, when I'm not even trying. Have you ever found that in other kind of relationships, that you can try so hard that they just see right through you? And I think the same can be true in our relationships with people. If it is a transactional relationship, they will see that. But if you're just genuinely wanting to build relationships with people, they will also see that. One last illustration, difference in these two things. I want you to imagine a a married couple. And things have not been very well, going very well for this married couple. And the husband realizes, I think we're on the verge of a divorce here. And says, I'm going to change my behavior. So I'm, I'm, I'm going to be more helpful around the house. I'm going to be kinder to my wife. I'm, I'm going to be more supportive of her career. I'm going to be more involved in the kids. And for three months, he's doing all these things, doing all these things, doing all these things. And his wife comes and says, we're getting a divorce. And a person who's seeing this in a transactional and, and, and outcome-oriented, they're going to say, well, what a waste. It was a complete waste that I was nice. It was a complete waste that I was invested in my, in my children. It was a complete waste that I said kind things. I'm never doing that again because it didn't lead to the outcome I wanted. Or imagine the same scenario. Marriage is in trouble. Husband decides to do all the same things. I'm going to be more encouraging to my wife. I'm going to be more supportive uh, to the kids. I'm going to be more encouraging to, the, to, to her career. I'm going to, I'm going to listen more deeply. And even same outcome. She comes three months later and says, we're getting a divorce. And he looks in the mirror and he says, I did what I could do to show love and kindness to my wife because that's the kind of a husband I want to be. It wasn't a waste. I would do it all over again in a second. I think that's the kind of a church that God wants us to be. The kind of a church that, that we love because we have first been loved. If there are certain outcomes to that love, then that's, that's a wonderful blessing. But even if there is not, our love is not conditional. Our love is not situational. Our love simply is an outreach, an outflow from the very nature of a people who have been loved by God. We want all people to be transformed into God's likeness. And I believe the best way for us to do that is to simply love people who need to be loved. So may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn towards you and give you peace. And remember, as we enter into this world, we do not go on our own. We go with the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. We go with the love of God. And we go with the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. We're going to sing a song in just a minute, and I'll be in the back. And if anyone would like to respond in any way, um, prayers, you want to talk about where you're at in your spiritual journey, I'll be back there to pray. With you, typically myself and some of the elders will be there, but I think a few of them have gone off to camp, and Eric's got to do an announcement afterwards. But if you want to pray about where you're at in life, if you want to um, inquire about what this discussion Jesus is talking about in believing and about repenting and about new life and eternal life, if you have questions about any of those sort of things, we just invite you to come to the back while we stand and sing this next song together.